Well, it is good to be in the house of the Lord again, amen, to fellowship, to sing his praises, to pray and to hear from his word. Both our passage this morning and our scripture reading is found in 1 Kings chapter 3. First Kings chapter 3, and I'll start by reading verses 1 to 15. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house, and the house of the Lord, and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great place Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God asked, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on the throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in the place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or to come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then... I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. So far the reading of God's word. I dislike conflict. I've heard that there, is, there are some who, who don't mind. They don't mind a little contention so long as it comes about in a good result and it doesn't get too personal. But I'm not that guy. 
For most of my life, I've actually managed to avoid getting into a fight, except for one Wednesday night when I was 12 years old here at the church. It was a Wednesday night program, and I was 12, and uh, one of the kids that belonged to our group brought a friend, but the friend was 14. And this friend didn't know anyone, so it only seemed logical that he stayed with us. But this kid was a big kid, and he was an army cadet. And if the stories were told to be true, he didn't mind getting into a fight. And the tension that he brought that night reached its peak when after the program was over, he began to bully the little kids in the parking lot. And he took my younger brother, who was nine, and began swinging him wildly around, which was very concerning for me. Not only because he was picking on the little kids, but because one little slip, and my brother would go skidding across the pavement. Well, somebody had to do something, right? I'm looking around for, for an adult. Maybe they can help. But there was no adult to be found. And my pulse began to quicken as I realized that it was going to have to be me who was going to have to do something. This kid was bigger. He was taller. He knew how to fight. And I had to do something. Yet this was not a fight I was going to win. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before your word this morning, we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that you would remove any dullness, Lord, that we would be alert to hear and alert to see your word for us this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Where our narrative begins... King David has died, and now Solomon is king over all of Israel. This was not without some family drama, as Solomon's older brother thought it was his right to be king and began to make some moves to put the pieces in place. But shortly before David dies, Solomon's mother goes to King David and pleads, is this not what you wanted for my son to rule? And all is set right, and now Solomon is king. And shortly after Solomon becomes king, and having sacrificed a great sacrifice to the Lord, the Lord speaks to him in a dream and asks him, What shall I give you? This is quite a question, isn't it? What shall I give you? This is, my own mind races with the possibilities. What would, what would I ask for? from the Lord. What would, what would you ask for? What would Solomon ask for? However, equally important is why will he ask for it? And this is what I'd like to focus on this morning, two halves of the same coin. On one side, what will Solomon ask for? And then on the other, why will he ask for it? To help us understand the first half of what Solomon requests, we will need to do a short review of the parable of the soils from a few weeks ago. In the last of the parable of the sower, you will call, we talked about the soft heart. 
and how that soft heart could be defined by one word, understands. We saw how this Greek word could be translated to to put two and two together, or literally to connect the dots. A hearing heart being the opposite of the hard path heart, and it's soft and submissive, connecting the dots of our own fallenness as we absorb the seed of the gospel in its entirety. In contrast, then, those who don't or won't see their own sin, they will hear, but they will never put two and two together. They will see, but never connect the dots, for their hearts have grown dull. And having a hearing heart or a listening heart to understand the Lord is a central disposition needed for salvation. What does this have to do with King Solomon? These same key words and concepts that Isaiah prophesied are actually used some 200 years earlier by King Solomon himself. Listen closely to the passage in Isaiah that Jesus quoted in the parable of the soils. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And we have some key words here that I I want you to, to focus on here. They hear, but they don't understand. They see, but they don't perceive. And their heart has grown dull. And with these words in mind, let's look into the narrative of 1 Kings, starting at verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God asked, What I shall give you? And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. Now listen to the remainder of Solomon's response to the Lord. Solomon is about to pray back to the Lord the same words that the Lord would give to Isaiah. Verse 7. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant in place of my David, in place of my father David, although I am but a little child, I do not perceive. It's the same Hebrew word. How to go out or to come in. In humility, Solomon begins by stating he doesn't perceive. Carry on in verse 8 as I continue to read the literal Hebrew words. And your servant in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude, Give your servant, therefore, a hearing heart to govern your people that I may understand between good and evil. The Hebrew word comparison here to Isaiah is stunning. Those with a dull heart, they hear, but they don't understand. They see, but they don't perceive. 
And now here is Solomon. I don't perceive, Lord. So give me a heart that hears and understands. Give me a heart that puts it all together, a servant's heart that connects the dots of righteousness. What Solomon is asking for is a hearing heart to be sensitive to what is right. And just like you and I, when we come before the Lord with a soft heart that wants to understand righteousness, this is something that the Lord is delighted to give. Look to verse 10. It pleased the Lord that Solomon asked for this. And God said to him, because you have asked for this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to hear what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Then look at what the Lord gives in verse 12. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning heart, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after. And why Solomon's request is so important for us to unpack is because to have a hearing heart is not only the doorway to salvation, but the only way to wisdom. A hearing heart and the Spirit of God are the only way to wisdom. Solomon himself would say this repeatedly through the book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. Wisdom and an understanding heart are what? is asked for, but why is Solomon asking for wisdom and understanding? This second question I would like to focus on this morning because for our generation, why Solomon is asking for wisdom or a hearing heart is incomprehensible. Why Solomon is asking for wisdom is to judge. Solomon describes Israel's population to be too many to be numbered or counted for multitude, and the responsibility to rule well is vast, and he needs the Lord's input. The King James will use a more literal term for the term govern in verse 9, and it reads like this. Give, therefore, thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad, for who is able to judge this thy so great a people? To say that Solomon asked for wisdom, in while true, is less than half the story. Solomon is asking for wisdom to govern, or literally, to judge God's people. I'm guessing of all the things we thought of earlier, this was not one of them. <laughs> Lord, make me more judging. Help 
mean to judge my friends and family and my church? Yet to be discerning between good and evil is the very wisdom needed to navigate this life. Lord, give us wisdom. But don't stop there. Wisdom to discern good and evil. To be called judging or judgmental in our time is often, if not always, an offensive term. Yes, we have selection and rejection in everyday life, ranging from discerning the weather to dress shopping. But where the real hang-up is for our culture are moral judgments. People do not like others who find them wanting or who disparage or subjugate others with their views. And for the most part, this dislike of judging is understandable especially in an age that no longer believes in truth. And if I were to reduce the problems that people have with judging others to three reasons, it would be these. The first reason why judging can be so unpopular is that judgments need a standard which few agree on. Back in antiquity, when you looked for truth, you found it from your deity, from your God. Hopefully it was the one true God, but more often than not, this was not the case. And so you found your truth from him, and this is how you were to worship. This is how you were to please your God. And so you offered sacrifices, and you wanted to know their will. Well, as time would progress and scientific discoveries would increase, suddenly all the phenomena that we attributed to our gods were not from our gods at all. The reason you got food poisoning was not because the gods were angry, it was because when we see in our microscopes that three-week-old hamburger was full of bacteria and the byproducts thereof. The reason your crops failed was not because the gods were angry, but because of weather patterns. That apple fell on your head not because of the wrath of Zeus, but because of gravity. This would lead Nietzsche to to write his short story where a young traveler was walking through saying, God is dead. We've killed God. Truth is not found from our gods or our deity. Truth is found in man and our discoveries. Oh, wow. Mankind has the secrets to truth. And you know what? We're going to come up with some utopian ideals I think you'll all like. And we'll name them communism and we'll name them fascism, and they will lead forth the path to humanity. Well, if you know your history at all, it led to a world war and millions of deaths. No, man was not the source of truth. Truth then in our eyes It does not exist. Our culture is afraid of truth. And anyone who claims to know truth is dangerous. It becomes a challenging thing then to judge good and evil in our time when there is no such thing as good and evil. And this 
leaves us now in a times that did in the time of judges, where every man does what is right in his own eyes. Look at us. No moral truth has a terrible price to pay. But at least our self-indulgence has nothing to stand in its way. Another reason why people are, are so averse to the idea of judging is that it can be used to belittle others. This has given rise to the widely used slogan, remove the stigma, as it could be defined as having negative attitudes toward mental or physical conditions. And this kind of quick-to-judge boldness that is based on a person's disability through no fault of oneself is ugly. It's a surfacey judgment that looks on the outside and does not consider unknown factors. We don't tend to like things that are different from ourselves, so we cast them aside. And this was at the heart of Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech when he said, I have a dream that my four children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by their character. Externals in the way of race and gender and disability have no weight in God's economy as the Lord deals in the currency of the heart. To judge rashly based on outward appearances is exactly the type of judgment that is devoid of wisdom and rightly upsets people who care. There is a third reason why people despise judgment, and that is for the reason of hypocrisy. I had to look it up, but it is still true. The most quoted verse in the Bible comes from Matthew 7. Judge not, lest ye be judged. There's something about hypocrisy that just gets under our skin when we see leaders and celebrities touting a cause, all the while violating their own righteous campaign. There was a a news story not too long ago. Um, A famous celebrity was touting his cause against the president of Brazil for cutting down parts of the rainforest. And yeah, I, I guess that makes sense. Unfortunately, he was posting all the while on a super yacht, which was measured to be burning carbon by the ton. It bugs us, and it bugs us sometimes when we see our leaders setting out rules for our own personal health and safety, yet breaking them themselves. Or church leaders preaching morality caught in immoral scandals. So many ways for human judgments to go wrong, isn't there? I guess it would just be best not to judge at all, am I right? Yet Jesus would say otherwise. Yes, you need to judge. In the very same sermon that he warns of hypocrisy, Jesus cautions that there will be wolves who will stalk your church and you will need to judge their fruit to determine who they are. And it's interesting to note that when Jesus is preaching this sermon, he's not preaching to kings. He's not preaching to elders. 
He's preaching to you and I. First, you need to pull the plank out of your own eye, but then judge rightly. For there can be judgments that are not hypocritical, that are not ignorant, that are done in humility and with the wisdom of God. This is possible. And why Solomon is asking for a hearing heart is that while the fear of the Lord is the only way to wisdom, wisdom is the only way to godly discernment. Do you see that? It's the same for you and I. A hearing heart and the Spirit of of, of God are the only way to wisdom. And wisdom is the only way to rightly discern right or wrong. Judgments and discerning right or wrong need wisdom, and Solomon understood this. And in all humility, Lord, we don't perceive. We don't understand. We need your help. And a wisdom that can only come from you. Wise judgments with a godly standard. Wise judgments that are well thought out and generous toward others. Wise judgments that are not hypocritical. Judgments in wisdom that are pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy. For the sake of purity and restoration. To judge can be such a delicate thing, and it can be a trying thing. It can even give rise to conflict. But if at the end of the day we are lined up with the Lord, we are, ju- we are judging for purity and restoration, are we not? For there will be a time to judge. For us here this morning, the Lord has given us two spheres of people which we should be ready to judge. Two circles of people in which we are, in fact, commanded to judge. The first group of people we are to judge and to judge constantly is ourselves. Our human nature so quickly gets away on us. And Galatians 5 says the flesh and the Holy Spirit, they're at war with each other. And you live by the flesh and the wisdom of the Spirit will vanish. You walk in sin and sin gets harder and harder to be objective about. You give way to the flesh and it becomes much more challenging to not become a hypocrite with our judgments. When shackled with the chains of ungodliness and guilt, it gets harder and harder to tell the world of the saving power of Christ. This is one of two major reasons why we participate in communion, to keep short accounts to judge ourselves rightly so that the Lord wouldn't have to do it for us in judgment. 
and severe consequence. And this type of self-reflection involves a humble spirit that is willing to listen and to make things right. For I know my transgressions, David would say, and my sin is ever before me. Asking the Lord to show you specific sin. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Or asking your spouse or a trusted friend, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Our hearts need constant checking in so that our judgments will be wise and pure. The second group we are called to judge rightly after we have examined ourselves is not the world around us as one might think. In 1 Corinthians, Paul would say, this is like shooting fish in a barrel. You can't miss. Well, he doesn't exactly say that. I'm paraphrasing a little. He says, what do I have to do with judging the world? I have to leave the world. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? We don't judge the world. Is it not those inside the church you are to judge? God judges those outside. But purge the evil person from among you. The second group then that we are to judge are those professing to be Christians who are walking in obvious sin. Oh, but I hate conflict. Can't I just ask an elder to do it? No. No, you can't. This task is for you and I. And as you see the sin taking place within the people of God, it is up to you to engage with all wisdom and gentleness for the sake of the church. It might mean conflict, but there is a bigger picture happening And in your taking action, there is protection for the weak. There is purity. There is peace. Well, I had to help my younger brother. There was no adults around, and it was going to have to be me who was going to act. I had two brothers, so I knew how to wrestle. But to get an actual fight... I didn't really have the first clue. So I did the only thing I knew how to do, and I, and I went up to this, this bully, and I gave him a kick in the shins as hard as I could. Well, this certainly got his attention, to which I received my very first knuckle sandwich to the side of my head. I reeled back, black and stars, but only doubled my resolve to go back after him and to close the gap for his punches until an adult could come and break it up. If you asked any observer on the outside, it was obvious that I had lost that fight. But the mission of protecting my brother was a success. And conflict because of defiant sin, especially sin in the church, can be an awful lot like this. You might not know what to do. You're in over your head. 
but it's a skirmish that needs to happen for the sake of the bigger picture of holiness, protection of the sheep, upholding the rights of the weak. We might come out with our bumps and bruises and those looking on might even say that it was a loss. But the mission of not allowing sin a free pass will be a success. With some people, we may lose the battle. They may choose to leave the church instead of making things right. But we will have won the war of church purity. It's tough. But if you were the one who has noticed the wrongdoing, even though we don't want to get involved, you must. Firstly, because God has given you the grace to go and gently engage. And secondly, who knows? It might simply have been a, a matter of misunderstanding. Or maybe the offender realizes the mistake and quickly makes it right. And God has put this situation in front of you for a reason, and sin cannot be left to grow. Solomon would say this in Ecclesiastes, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. If the signs in our neighbor's lawns are to be believed, making moral judgments is often equated with hate. And we understand where where they're coming from with no standard for truth, with rushed judgments and hypocrisy. But this is a very dangerous connection. For nations to judge and uphold the rule of the law brings out justice. And justice is the cornerstone of a civilization. It's no different for the church. To make a just observation or judgment regarding sinful behavior in our believing brothers or sisters is not hateful, but an act of love. Jesus said, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And to point someone toward this mercy and forgiveness of Christ is a beautiful thing. Yes, we need to judge kindly in our demeanor, but the act of pulling someone aside and pointing them to Christ-like behavior is love. And it is much more loving than simply being nice or looking the other way. We are fellow sojourners and we are in an often difficult walk together. And as we strive for participation with the Holy Spirit, as we struggle to maintain the reputation of Christ, as we labor to be Christ-like ourselves, Righteous judgments to clear up stumbling blocks are a blessing from the Lord. Do you see that? To judge well is not 
repulsive or hateful as our world thinks, but is an act of loving kindness that directs others to the mercy of Christ. And it all starts with what Solomon was asking for, to have a hearing heart, to know the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And not just wisdom for wisdom's sake, but to discern right and wrong. A hearing heart and the Spirit of God are the only way to wisdom, and wisdom is the only way to godly discernment. This is a lesson that will need to be learned and learned well, as next week we're going to need this godly discernment, for wisdom will face its first test. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who who speaks and who gives us your word. And Lord, that if we would only have soft hearts to see and to hear, Lord, that you would change us and you would save us and, and not just mercy in saving us, but then grace to give us wisdom to see right and wrong. Lord, we live in a very challenging time for this. But Lord, may it be a lesson that we learn to walk humbly and purely in your spirit that we would be able to judge and judge well. Lord, seal your word to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.